All right, we got a couple of hot mics. Hey, stupid, look at yourself. Cut it out! Cut it out! Cut it out! The hell's the matter with you? Stupid. We're all very different people. We're not Watusi. We're not Spartans. We're Americans with a capital A, huh? You know what that means? Do you? That means that our forefathers were kicked out of every decent country in the world. We are the wretched refuse. We're the underdog. We're mutts. Here's proof. His nose is cold. But there's no animal that's more faithful, that's more loyal, more lovable than the mutt. Who saw Old Yeller? Who cried when Old Yeller got shot at the end? Nobody cried when Old Yeller got shot, I'm sure. I cried my eyes out. So we're all dog faces. We're all very, very different. But there is one thing that we all have in common. We were all stupid enough to enlist in the army. We're mutants. There's something wrong with us. Something very, very wrong with us. Something seriously wrong with us. We're soldiers. But we're American soldiers. We've been kicking ass for 200 years. We're 10 and 1. Now, we don't have to worry about whether or not we've practiced. We don't have to worry about whether Captain Stillman wants to have us hung. All we have to do is to be the great American fighting soldier that is inside each one of us. Now, do what I do and say what I say. and make me proud. Fall in? So if you haven't seen the movie Stripes with Bill Murray, uh, that is from that movie. <clears throat> what did you think of that movie? It, it, was, it was really funny. Unfortunately, you started playing it kind of late, and I didn't get all the way through it as I would have... Well, I got all the way through it, but... No, you didn't. So I was kind of dozing in and out, but it w- <laughs> it wasn't because I don't like Bill Murray. It was just- start- that's the second film we've watched together with Bill Murray that she didn't like. So no, it's just you play you, you you sort of force me to watch. You sort of decide we're watching this tonight, and you know part of me is like, well, I'm not gonna enjoy it. Oh, okay. you know what i mean no i don't but uh no but what from what i remember is really funny and that part that part's hilarious um, yeah and i wanted to play it for this particular episode because we're talking about the uh hero to the underdog that is the american soldier ernie Pyle. mr ernie Pyle. mr Pyle, and i thought that that pump up scene from Bill Murray is just too funny. If you haven't watched the movie, watch it. Stripes. It's it's pretty funny. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so to move on to our subject of the day, we're talking about Ernie Pyle, who is a World War II war correspondent 
and he's kind of the American darling of war correspondence too. So he's pretty well beloved in the sort of arena of war writing. So we're very excited to talk about it. He's definitely, if you Google right now, World War II war correspondence, his picture is the first one to pop up. So, And I didn't know about him before uh, my co-host, uh, what's your name tonight? Uh, Amelia Earhart. Not Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart. Amelia. Amelia Earhart. That's really going to roll off the tongue. Yes. All right, M.A. Miss uh, <laughs> Earhart brought up the the topic last week and I wasn't too excited of it because I'd never really heard of him and also he was a journalist so I didn't think it was going to be that cool um also but, he distrust distrust anything I suggest yeah off off just off the cuff a little bit and uh after researching I found out I was terribly wrong and that Mr. Ernie Pyle was a uh, spokesperson for the everyday GI like no one I've ever heard of in the history of war. Uh, he represented a he represented a lot of the U.S. Army, and it was really cool to see how he immortalized so much of what happened in that war and the men who fought it and how much respect he had for them for doing it. Yeah, respect and love, I think. And his style was really... Uh, kind of emulate it after him. So after that, you see a lot of war correspondents kind of have that back and forth with the foot soldier or the infantry. But really, he was kind of the first one to do it. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, so we're going to open this up with uh, one of his short articles. <clears throat> it was written December 1st, 1942. The title is Killing is All That Matters. And it is with the American forces in Algiers, which, if you don't know, that's North Africa. <clears throat> From now onward, stretching for months and months into the future, life is completely changed for thousands of American boys on this side of the earth. For at last they are in there fighting. The jump from camp life into front-line living is just as great as the original jump from civilian life into the army. Only those who served in the last war can conceive of the makeshift, deadly, urgent, always moving onward complexion of frontline existence. And existence is exactly the word. It is nothing more. The last of the comforts are gone. From now on, you sleep in bedrolls under little tents. You wash whenever and wherever you can. You carry your food on your back when you are fighting. You dig ditches for protection from bullets and from the chill north wind off the Mediterranean. There are no more hot water taps. There are no post exchanges where you can buy cigarettes. There are no movies. When you speak to a civilian, you have to wrestle with a foreign language. You carry just enough clothing to cover you and no more. You don't lug any knickknacks at all. When our troops made their first landing in North Africa, they went four days without even blankets, just catching a few hours sleep on the ground. Everybody either lost or chucked aside some of his equipment. Like most troops going into battle for the first time, they all carried too much at first. Gradually, they shed it. The boys tossed out personal gear from the musset bags and filled them with ammunition. The countryside for 20 miles around Oran was strewn with overcoats, field jackets, and mess kits as the soldiers moved on the city. 
Arabs will be going around for a whole generation clad in odd pieces of American army uniforms. At the moment, our troops are bivouacked for miles around each of three large centers of occupation, Casablanca, Oran, Algiers. They are consolidating, fitting in replacements, making repairs, spending a few days taking a deep breath before moving on to other theaters of action. They are camped in every conceivable way. In the city of Oran, some are billeted in office buildings, hotels, and garages. Some are camping in parks in big vacant lots on the edge of town. Some are miles away, out in the country, living on treeless stretches of prairie. They are in tiny groups and in huge batches. Some of the officers live in tents and sleep on the ground. Others have been lucky enough to commandeer a farm horse, farmhouse or a barn, sometimes even a villa. The tent camps look odd. The little low tents hold two men apiece and stretch as far as you can see. There are Negro camps as well as white. You see men washing mess kits and clothing in five-gallon gasoline cans, heated over an open fire made from sticks and pieces of packing cases. They strip naked and take sponge baths in the heat of the day. In the quick cold of night, they cuddle up in their bedrolls. You see Negroes playing baseball under the bright African sun during their spare hours of an afternoon. The American soldier is quick in adapting himself to a new mode of living. Outfits which have been here only three days have dug vast networks of ditches three feet deep in the bare brown earth. They have rigged up a light here and there with a storage battery. They have gathered boards and made floors and sideboards for their tents to keep out the wind and sand. They have hung out their washing and painting their names over the tent flaps. You even see a soldier sitting on his front step of an evening playing a violin. They've been here only three days, and they know they're unlikely to be here three days more. But they patch up some kind of home nevertheless. Even in this short waiting period, life is far from static. Motor convoys roar along the highways. Everything is on a basis of not a minute to spare. There is a new spirit among the troops, a spirit of haste. Planes pass constantly and eastbound. New detachments of troops wait for orders to move on. Old detachments tell you the stories of their first battle and conjuncture about the next one. People you've only recently met hand you slips of paper with their home addresses and say, you know in, some, in case something happens, would you mind writing? At last we are in it up to our necks and everything has changed, even your outlook on life. Swinging first and swinging to kill is all that matters now. The town as a whole has been turned back to the French, but the army keeps a hand raised and there will be no miscues. Signed, er Ernie Pyle. Ernie Pyle. I love his signature at the end of all his articles. Yeah. Well, thank you for reading that. So, yeah, so I mean, there's a lot there. I, I think right away what kind of catches me is his sort of very casual way of it's very descriptive but it's casual uh, but it has a, a touch of the poetic and we'll see this in some of the other art columns that we read that we'll read from him but he was a very very precise writer yeah he definitely had a way with words and uh one thing that kind of blew me away when when i first started researching the topic 
Uh, I really didn't fall in love with this guy until I read his writing and realized that this writing was being printed every day in a newspaper back in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, Joe Rogan talks a lot about it, a lot on his podcast, how the form of media we've had that has evolved is kind of out of place now. Yeah. Because it doesn't give you a story. It just pushes a narrative that's short and there's no time to respond and you can't understand anything because it's just five minute, one minute clip, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And punch words. And this is the exact opposite of that. You, when you read this guy's articles together and if you're at home following along, you get a pretty clear picture of what life was like for them without any kind of propaganda or false words. I mean, he tells you what a day-to-day life is like, and that must have been very, very comforting for a lot of people back home. Yeah, I mean, it was very, very comforting and valuable and necessary, you know, and then you hear about stories about these columns were being read from anyone from the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, to who said that she was a fan. She publicly spoke about Ernie Pyle, and to the common mom and dad who had their son overseas, you know. And so these, this voice was kind of uniting all Americans from the First Lady to, you know. So that that is something that, that is kind of rare, too, to yeah. have that kind of unifying uh, cultural reference. You would have had, like, a billion followers on Instagram. Yeah, and most of them wouldn't have read all the way through his no. columns. <laughs> they would just looked at the picture and... Yeah, not. the headline. But yeah, if, if you have the chance, there's a couple of different websites that have compiled his articles that you can find online. Um, and I yeah. would really recommend re- just reading a few of them because there's so many and we're not going to be able to cover them all today. Um, I think yeah. he wrote... Uh, I'll have the number later when we talk about it. When he talks about leaving Europe... He mentions how much he wrote, and it's astounding. Yeah, it really is. <clears throat> so, but one of, just to mention one of the sites that you can get it is like, I think the, in, he was, he went to Indiana. So it's like the Indiana School of Journalism or whatever. And they have a lot of his columns along with accompanying audio if you want to listen to them being read. Yeah, or you can just listen to me read them well, that would be the first choice send yes. me a message and whatever article you want read by ernie Pyle, i'll read it and send it to you okay with a signed photo of yourself yeah john wayne jr <laughs> uh but yeah i found mine on a website called privateletters.net and it has uh collected some of his major ones so not all of them but a majority of his letters are there <clears throat> um and Just to give a little bit of factual background about who Ernie Pyle was, you want to move into that real quick? Yeah, let's do it. So Ernest Taylor Taylor Pyle, August 3rd, 1900 to April 18th, 1945. Uh, He was a Pulitzer Prize winning American journalist and war correspondent who is best known for his stories about ordinary American soldiers during World War II. And... He did a lot of columns before World War II, which were just about everyday humans in the U.S., writing from 1935 to 1941. Um, The European theater, he served 42 to 44, and in the Pacific theater, he served 45 up until his death at Okinawa. Uh, He won the Pulitzer Prize in 44, so while he was still alive, for his accounts of the dog face inventory. And... 
He was syndicated in 400 daily newspapers and 300 weekly newspapers nationwide. So to give you an idea, I looked this up, but in 1945, uh, they had 330 morning newspapers, 1,400 evening newspapers, 1,700 daily newspapers, and 485 Sunday newspapers. So about 4,000 total. So he represented almost a quarter of the newspapers, and that was the form of news back then. Yeah, that's really an amazing number to think about that people were you know, constantly reading about, I mean, everything, but the war specifically, they were just hungry for news about it. Oh, yeah. And if, I mean, people just love stories. I mean, we're we're a storytelling nation. Look at how we've evolved and, you know, how much Netflix and Amazon Prime plays in a young kid's life, how many hours they put to that. So before all that, it was just reading the newspaper or the radio, or you would catch a little snippet before a movie. So he definitely influenced uh, lots of people's views on that conflict. Yeah, yeah. Um, so moving on, he uh, his his mom and dad weren't educated beyond eighth grade, and he was a, his dad was a tenant farmer. Pyle did not want to be a farmer. In fact, he has this funny quote right here. Uh, when he talks about disliking farming, he said anything was better than looking at the south end of a horse going north. <laughs> so right. Yeah. He, he definitely was an uppity young child. He had such an, ad- I mean, it says right there, but he had such, such, he was an adventurer and you can tell, you know, cause later in his life, everything he did, he just yeah, had that wild, was adventure. wild heart. So he was uh, around during World War One, and he had enlisted to join in with the Navy Reserve. And he was going to go into college to be an officer, I guess, or do some kind of training there. And the war ended before he was able to finish his training. So he never got to actually serve. Uh, he, he majored in economics and journalism, and he ran the student paper, and that's kind of where he became... Uh, started forming a style that he was known for. Can I ask you a question? Do you remember the student paper in your college? No. Okay. Ask me the last time I've read a paper. Oh, the other day you bought the paper. I didn't read it, though. Well, I I read you that story about the dog. Yeah, and that was... So before that... Uh, actually, I'll say the when I was overseas, the Stars and Stripes is actually pretty fun to read, oh, okay. mainly for the crossword puzzles, and then seeing some that is, you know it's a liberal newspaper. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever read it. Yeah, it's very liberal leaning. They like to bash a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in there. So it was mm. I never really read it, but the crosswords were very Amazing. entertaining, and it Great. was daily, so you had a new crossword every day. That's really good. And when good. you're trying to kill time, it's a good way to do it. That's good I to wish me. I wish I would have had an Ernie Pyle column to read. Yeah, yeah, I was just curious, you know, about the school paper because you know a lot of famous People writers were, yeah, started there, papers. but not anymore. Well, I mean, once again, I mean, you had nothing else, right? Yeah. I mean, if if I had no television or phone when I went to college, and they were like, "Hey, here's the source of news for what's going on in campus," I'd be like, "Oh, well, yeah, I should probably read that." Yeah. Was there cell phones when you went to college? There were cell phones when I was in high school. Oh, okay. You old fuck. (laughs) How dare you. (laughs) I'm here today with uh, the real live Amelia Earhart. Amelia. Amelia Earhart. 
Anyway, um, so yeah, to talk about his traveling, he actually went to Japan with a baseball team that from Indiana University and got passage on a ship working on the ship. Uh, he traveled through Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Manila, as well as Japan before returning to the U.S., so that's when he was still you know, young. Yeah, it's worth mentioning, though, that he went on that trip, I think, a year before he got his degree, so he pretty much dropped out of college right. to go on that trip. Yeah, I was going to get to that, but that's fine. Oh. That was the next bullet, if you would have read. I am. I... Oh, weird. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, like my co-host said, he dropped out of school, but he went to go work at the Laporte Herald, and he earned $25 a week, which in today's time, I looked that up as well, that's $500 a week in 2019 times. It's so, not bad. Oh, yeah. I mean, for a 20-year-old, mm-hmm. yeah, he must have felt like he was living. So he worked for the Herald for three months before moving to D.C., and he joined the staff of the Washington Daily News, and that's kind of where his uh, the rest of his career jumps off. Um, he met his wife there, Geraldine Elizabeth Jerry Siebolds, and uh, they married. It was pretty funny. He wrote columns about his travels through america and he would call her that girl who rides with me yeah but she would travel with him across america while that while he was writing about everyday people and uh he bought some property in albuquerque new mexico and that's kind of where they uh lived out of and the other funny thing is they were both apparently heavy abuser of alcohol heavy abusers of alcohol how's that funny well, here's the funny part. So they got <laughs> divorced, but then they got remarried. Right. So <laughs> that's the funny part. Oh, right. Yeah. And they never had any children. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you could tell he definitely partied hard. If you look at the photos of him. Yeah. Because when he, I looked at the first photo of him, I'm like, oh, this dude's like 70. I didn't really feel bad about him dying. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I mean, at least he lived a full life. <laughs> but no, he was 40 years old. Yeah, isn't yeah. that wild? He was, uh, he was definitely a little roughed up. And I remember, uh, I don't know if it was here that I read it, but somebody described his wife as an unconventional woman at the time. I guess she was pretty wild herself. And, you know, she suffered several mental, or she had some kind of mental illness, right? Which Yeah, I read it was bipolar. Okay. Which they probably didn't know at the time. It's just unconventional. But, uh, yeah, and just one more thing before we move on to him in the war. He uh, had a pretty famous aviation column, which at the time, I mean, that was a huge invention. So it would have been something of interest. And uh, Amelia Earhart has a quote oh, yeah. as saying, any aviator who didn't know Pyle was a nobody. And he flew about 100,000 miles without ever being a pilot yeah so he definitely he he lived a very full life yeah and i think actually uh emilia Earhart, um i read somewhere gave him a watch as a gift and he was wearing that watch on the day of his death Hmm. i didn't see that i'll take your word for it though uh how dare you speak to me i just said i'd take your word for it And, and anyway uh, one more quote I wanted to say, which was kind of cool, and it was from, he was uh, friends with John Steinbeck, which you know a little bit more than I do about that, but Steinbeck uh, told Time Magazine, 
there are really two wars and they haven't much to do with each other. There's the war of maps and logistics, of campaigns, of ballistics, armies, divisions, and regiments, and that is General Marshall's, Marshall's War. Then there is the war of the homesick, weary, funny, violent, common men who wash their socks and their helmets, complain about the food, whistle at the Arab girls, or any girls for that matter, and bring themselves through as dirty a business as the world has ever seen and do it with humor and dignity and courage. And that is Ernie Pyle's War. That's pretty wow, cool. Wow, I, I mean, read that. It's a good quote. Yeah, Steinbeck. He always makes the podcast, Your Dog. Oh, yeah, that's by dog Samuel Beckett. <laughs> Shaking off. Another famous author. So. Anyway, um, so just to start this timeline, what we're going to cover... Uh, we'll talk about him in Britain, him in North Africa, him in Italy, him in France, leaving Germany, and then him in the Pacific. That's right. So my little bit on London, um, before we had joined the war in 40, 1940, he went to London to, to write about the firebombing that was going on, the Blitzkrieg. And that article he wrote is very, very beautiful. I'll just read a small snippet of it. But he was quoted to say, the most hateful, most beautiful single scene I have ever known about that. And I think that's kind of where his his passion to write about the war started. Because he saw, like, just how terrible this was going to be with the new uh, machinations and inventions we had. And he felt like he had to write about it. Yeah. So moving on. So, oh, I thought you were going to read that bit with him in London. I just did. That was it. Oh, okay. Uh, so talking about, what's your next one is from Italy? Yeah, so. <clears throat> yeah, because the first one we read was actually from North Africa. So that was just a taste of what oh, he was right. writing like while he was in North Africa. Well, this one is still kind of in North Africa, then we'll go into Italy. And and it was just because one of the one of the things that he's most kind of known for is his love of the infantry. So he traveled with the infantry guys for a long time, and so I thought I would read one of uh, just an excerpt from one of his columns called The Goddamned Infantry. So this is still North this is Northern Tunisia, May 2nd of 1943. He says, quote, I love the infantry because they are the underdogs. They are the mud, rain, frost, and wind boys. They have no comforts, and they even learn to live without the necessities. And in the end, they are the guys that wars can't be won without. In their eyes, as as they pass in in not hatred, not excitement, not despair, not the tonic of their victory, there is just the simple expression of being here as though they had been here doing this forever and nothing else. There is an agony in your heart, and you almost feel ashamed to look at them. They are just guys from Broadway and Main Street, but you wouldn't remember them. They are too far away now. They are too tired. The world can never be known to you. But if you could see them just once, just for an instant, you would know that no matter how hard people work back home, they are not keeping pace with these infantrymen in Tunisia. End quote. And so, and that's, you see that a lot in his writings. It's at the end he addresses the American people with the second part, you, you know, and he, and you see that in several of his columns where he says, you wouldn't know the difference and you didn't see this. And that, that's, 
I think that that probably was pretty powerful to people reading back home. Yeah, I mean, it's powerful to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even in 1940. Right. I mean, I I'm always loved writing. You've loved writing. We both have read a bunch, and for him to stand out that much after me just reading one article uh, really struck me because I haven't I haven't read a style like that since like the first time I read a Hemingway book, where I was like, oh man, this dude can write That's interesting like, yeah he, he has a voice that i love and i want to just read more of it Absolutely. Uh, so another he was uh he was known to do uh just individual pieces on individual soldiers and that was pretty cool and his most famous one is on the death of captain waskow um, which you can actually find a pretty cool youtube video on where some guy draws it while he's narrating it um, I wanted to read, there's another one which I really liked uh, from Italy, and it was on Buck Eversole, one of the great men of the war. Uh, so just a few excerpts. It was written in Italy, February 21st, 1944. The company commander said to me, every man in this company deserves the silver star. We walked around in the olive grove where the men of the company were sitting on the edges of their foxholes, talking or cleaning their gear. Let's go over here, he said. I want to introduce you to my personal hero. I figured that the lieutenant's own personal hero, out of a whole company of men who deserve the Silver Star, must be a real soldier indeed. Then the company commander introduced me to Sergeant Frank Eversole. He shook hands sort of timidly and said, Pleased to meet you, and then didn't say any more. I could tell by his eyes and by his slow and courteous speech when he did talk that he was a Westerner. Conversation with him was sort of hard, but I didn't mind his reticence, for I know how Westerners like to size people up first. The sergeant wore a brown stocking cap on the back of his head. His eyes were the piercing kind. I noticed his hands. They were outdoor hands, strong and rough. Later in the afternoon, I came past his foxhole again, and we sat and talked a little while alone. We didn't talk about the war, but mainly about our West, and just sat and made figures on the ground with sticks as we talked. We got started that way, and in the days that followed, I came to know him well. He is to me and to all those with whom he serves one of the great great men of the war. Like any cowboy, he loves animals. Here in Italy, one afternoon, Buck and some other boys were pinned down inside a one-room stone shed by terrific German shell fire. As they sat there, a frightened mule came charging through the door. There simply wasn't room inside for men and mule both. So Buck got up and shoot him out the door. Thirty feet from the door, a direct hit killed the mule. Buck has always felt guilty about it. Buck has the purple heart and two silver stars for bravery. He is cold and deliberate in battle. His commanders depend more on him than any other man. He has been wounded once and has had countless narrow escapes. He has killed many Germans. His grammar is the unschooled grammar of the plains and the soil. He uses profanity but never violently. Even in the familiarity of his own group, his voice is always low. He is such a confirmed soldier by now that he always says sir to any stranger. It is impossible to conceive of his doing anything dishonest. And I just, I want to say on that part with the sir to any stranger, Uh you don't know how important that trait is until you've been hemmed up by some asshole captain or major that you don't sir. Mm. Uh, Buck has no hatred for Germans. 
He kills because he's trying to keep himself alive. The years roll over him and the war becomes his only world and battle his only profession. He armors himself with the philosophy of acceptance of what may happen. I'm mighty sick of it all, he says very quietly, but there ain't no use to complain. I just figured it this way, that I've been given a job to do and I've got to do it. And if I don't live through it, there's nothing I can do about it. Ernie Pyle. That's another, that's another great one. Ah, it's so, so beautiful. The, the sort of the detail, just these small details, like the one about the mule and how he felt guilty about that. Like those kinds of details were a lot, a lot of, is a lot of what stands out in his writing too. You know, these, these small moments where only if you were there at that time, you could understand sort of the significance of it. And he sort of is able to bring that, bring that home across the page. Yeah. What I love about his writing is, uh, have you ever heard of Carl Junger? No. He's a modern day author that writes a lot about uh, post-traumatic stress. And in one of his books, uh, Tribe, he talks about how Native Americans used to have this tradition where they would come back from a war party and then they would Mm -hmm. be able to tell the tribe about what they did for the tribe. And they would talk about who they had slain or what they had done or what scalps they had taken. Mm -hmm. And it was a matter of pride for that tribe. And so they never experienced war stress because it was important to protect your tribe. Right. And he talks about how modern day vets don't have that same platform. You come Mm -hmm. back home from a war and you're isolated. You're not, you know, when you're at war, especially their war, World War II, I mean, they're around the same dudes. They're sleeping butt to nut for years. Mm -hmm. And they're very close quarters, and they're always people around. And then they go from that back to America, where potentially they don't have family. Or if they do, you know, they've been living their life for four years, and you're trying to jump into it. Right. So it's... It's a different rhythm. Yeah, it's... it's You can come back from that and feel like no one can understand you. Like you're yeah. speaking a whole different language. And you try to explain the simplest thing that you did over there. Like what he talks about with the rain, like trying to explain that story Mm -hmm. and how your butthole is puckered up because you may be killed by a German artillery shell. Yeah. And having to explain how this mule walked in and it was funny. Mm -hmm. And people may not understand that. You know, and it happens to war vets all the time. And so the one thing I loved about this guy and what his column did was he told their story and he legitimized their actions and and was able to give them a sense of purpose for what they did. And so when he talks about how he, he didn't hate the Germans, but he was a killer and he doesn't make it a shameful thing. That is just beautiful. And it doesn't really, I mean, can you imagine reading an article about a modern soldier in Afghanistan who's a killer and, and reading about how he's a killer, but he knows that it's just a job to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big, big differences too. I mean, Ernie Powell was clearly, um, or most war correspondents at that time anyway, were were on on America's side and they were supporting the war effort. Now, that doesn't mean that they were... Um, I guess what you can see in his writing is 
he 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 doesn't go to the like the moral grandstanding or there's no um, bullshit there's no yeah like big it's picture stuff about yeah. this or about you know freedom versus fascism right. like he doesn't touch those big ideas he stays on the ground and he talks yeah. about a normal dude and i think yeah. that's uh that's the biggest takeaway i got from this guy was he he probably like if you were buck and or if you were anyone in buck's platoon and you read that article you wouldn't even have to be buck you just know that you knew buck and you were there with what he did and it was in the paper you know across 700 different papers and and people had read it like you get filled with a sense of pride yeah and that is uh that is a priceless thing that he did um i mean yeah. it's really something that it's you know the the value of good writing this that's so often lost today i think um it's it's pretty amazing what it can do what a good voice can do yeah and it was just easier i think it was easier to get your like it's funny how today is the easiest to get your voice out there but yeah. back then to cure a good voice it was easier to do you know what i mean yeah um so <clears throat> do you have anything else from italy um well i had a i had a bit on how are we doing on time i had a bit on the medic okay so but i don't know if you want to move on to normandy to the d-day uh yeah i want to actually you brought up a good point because he did this while he was in italy um but he did two things for the soldiers in italy is one he um after being with them for so long and seeing the hardships they endured he used his influence to start a bill in Congress to get them combat duty pay, which is pretty amazing because that's still around today. Um, but at the time, the, the Army Air Corps was getting what they call flight pay because it was like a 50% chance of you getting shot down. But the Army infantry who was getting shot at had no extra pay for that. So they actually ended up calling it the Ernie Pyle Bill in Congress, and it passed. And then he has another beautiful article where he – you want to pour your whiskey first or no, – I'm, li I'm listening. I can do <laughs> where he, things at once. Because one thing he was known for, he has a bunch of articles on just these jobs that you may never hear of. Yeah. So he talks about uh, the, sh the, the shipping dudes and guys that drive trucks and guys who carry litters. And, you know, if, if he met a guy who was sweeping a tent that was a general's aide, he probably would have written about him. But uh, anyway, with the uh, combat medics, which um, at that time, combat medics, most of them were unarmed and they would go and go in with the ground troops and try and, you know, fix dudes up and patch them up before the litter bearers got there. So they were experiencing just as much duress, but there was no equivalent to a combat infantry badge, which the combat infantry badge is something you get if you experience a firefight mm -hmm. and you're in combat as an infantryman. Um, and it's, it's still, there's still some pride around it today, that CIB, but there was nothing equivalent for a medic because they didn't qualify for the CIB since they didn't carry weapons. Yeah. And I remember if I remember correctly from one of the documentaries, um, they said the medics got paid less. Oh, I didn't hear that. So I think it was in the Ken Burns documentary. Um, but anyway, he also wrote another article, um, that influenced the combat 
uh, action award for medics. And I don't, I don't know the name of it because the article didn't mention that, but I know it's still around because the whiskey that I was deployed with talked about trying to get one. He's a young kid, funny kid. (laughs) Anyway, so he definitely, that's how much influence he had that he was able to write to Congress and then get Congress to pass something. And infantrymen to this day should still toast him in bars because combat pay is still around, baby. And it's an extra 50 bucks a month for strippers. Um, But anyway. (laughs) That's how much a stripper costs? Uh, That's that's another podcast. Oh, okay. It's going to take too long. Oh, right. I mean, cost there's just so many layers to peel back there <laughs> all right i was just trying to see what kind of information i could get out of you well, it was 50 dollars today i don't know they got a significant amount back then though i remember yeah. seeing the number and, and being surprised at it but uh anyway so do you so, have anything else in italy um no i mean i guess we could move on he he wrote one of the pieces he wrote um since you're talking about the medics um, we don't have to read it, but it's called As Proficient as a Circus, and it's somewhere in Sicily, August 11th, 1943. And he just goes through just how the many, the very many aspects of the many what the doc... The, the very? The very many aspects of... The multitude, um, the plethora. Thank you. Yeah. Of the sort of the medics and the doctors and how they would go from the battlefield with the medics to the hospitals which might just be like a tent under a tree or something and so he highlights this whole um process and um and it's pretty interesting to find out and so he gives a lot of logistics logistical stuff and details about how things actually work in the battlefield and that was probably very valuable to the people back home back home too to know how how are these things working like how do they go how does this happen when they get shot what happens to them and so he has a piece like that Um, yeah i mean and that just goes back to what i was saying earlier he gave i mean those dudes if they go back home and they say i was a combat medic everyone's gonna have a different perception of what that is but now they have someone like immortalizing what they did which is pretty pretty awesome yeah Uh, so, real quick, he was involved in D-Day. He was one of the 28 war correspondents chosen to go in with the troops for the invasion. And I have a funny... He wrote a couple articles on that, and I have a funny quote from that. He was writing on the way back from the initial in- invasion, so like four or five days afterwards. Mm-hmm. He went back to England with some of the war correspondents. And on his way back, he wrote just an article on the lead up to going into D-Day because he wasn't allowed to write about D-Day yet because it was an operation that was still going on. Uh, But he's got this this pretty funny part where he's talking about all the journalists and and explaining how like all the war correspondents are kind of like, you know, beaten dogs. They've all experienced a lot of turmoil. They're all nervous. They don't like their chances going into D-Day. Mm-hmm. But then he talks about this guy, Bill Stoneman, who was a veteran correspondent that had actually gotten shot in the line of duty. And he talks about how he was, after being shot, he was didn't really care before going in an operation. He was always calm. So Bill, uh, who was who has been wounded once, never shows the slightest concern about these things. Whether he feels any concern or not, I do not know. Bill has a humorous, sardonic manner, 
While we were waiting for the departure into the unknown, he took out a pencil and notebook as though to start to interview me. Tell me, Pyle, how does it feel to be an assault correspondent? Being a man of few words, I said, it feels awful. (laughs) And I wanted to bring that up to say this is kind of about that time he had been in the field for, uh, you know, more than a year and seen a lot. And, you know, he'd seen the Battle of Britain like he had seen a lot of horrible things. And this is when you can tell in his writing where a lot of that stress is starting to creep up on him. And I wanted to bring up the fact that I I wondered when I was reading about him if a lot of that comes from the fact that he didn't have a gun. Like he wasn't Mm -hmm. a part – he wasn't in action. He was only an observer. Right. Like I would imagine – my personality, like I would want the gun and I would want to be involved in it. I would feel less scared because I'm moving forward. But if I had been a medic or a pilot uh, that was flying the airborne dudes in or, or war correspondent, I would not like that as much. Like if I'm just, if I am a crucial part that's experienced in the combat, but I don't have that one piece of control where at least I know I have a rifle. Yeah. And I, I wondered if uh, if maybe that was a lot of his distress was he was just there and he was kind of helpless and he was just an observer. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. Um, I don't I don't know who knows how he felt. I, I'm sure I'm sure there were moments where he wished he had a weapon. There had to have been, right? For um, sure. I mean, and, he was around. Yeah, but uh, but you know he was also a writer by nature who and a lot of times. They're just sort of born observers, you know. But you know what I mean. But he had tried to join World War. Yeah, I. no, I know. And he I mean, was I don't know. forty when World War Two comes out, and he had already been established as a writer. He knew, hey, the you know I could join, but the best thing for me to do would be able to use this talent that I have to give people something back home. So I can understand he probably was in conflict. Because he seemed like the kind of guy that would have just, like, if he would have been 20, he would have just joined. Yeah. No, he was. I mean, I read that he tried, yeah, he tried to enlist in World War I, but he was too young. And that's when he joined the reserves a little bit later. Um, And when World War II broke out, he had a moment where he wondered whether he should just enlist. And he decided to go as a war correspondent. And maybe, like you said, because he was already established and... You know, he had a following and he knew that maybe it was something. It was his responsibility. It was like a duty of sorts. Yeah. yeah. And so. it, I'm sure a bunch of soldiers appreciated that and a bunch of mothers and fathers appreciated him more than he knew. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we're kind of running up on time. You got anything else on D-Day you want to say? Um, I had, okay, I'll cut down. He has three separate pieces on D-Day. I'll just read like a short excerpt, but if you want to read those, those are pretty impactful, um, obviously, because he describes various aspects of D-Day. So um, this short excerpt is called from A Long Thin Line of Personal Anguish, uh, Normandy Beachhead, June 17th, 1944. So this was about 11 days or so after D-Day. So he writes, Here are toothbrushes and razors and snapshots of families back home staring up at you from the sand. Here are pocketbooks, metal mirrors, extra trousers, and bloody abandoned shoes. Here are broken-handled shovels and portable radios smashed almost beyond recognition and mine detectors twisted and ruined. 
Here are torn pistol belts and canvas water buckets, first aid kits, and jumbled heaps of life belts. I picked up a pocket Bible with a soldier's name in it and put it in my jacket. I carried it half a mile or so and then put it back down on the beach. I don't know why I picked it up or why I put it back down. Soldiers carry strange things ashore with them. In every invasion, you'll find at least one soldier hitting the beach at H hour with a banjo slung over his shoulder. The most ironic piece of equipment marking our beach, this beach of first despair, then victory, is a tennis racket that some soldier had brought along. It lies lonesomely on the sand, clamped in its rack, not a string broken. End quote. So just yeah, interesting he, picture of the, the shoreline. Yeah, he does a good, man, he does such a great job. It, Anytime you're deployed anywhere and you try to explain anything about that deployment, it in your head when you say it, it sounds stupid. Like as I would tell people about my short experience, I never knew if they believed me or if what I was saying was right. Or um, I'm sure, I mean, most vets I, I talked to about it said they just never talked about stuff uh, when they got back. Because uh, not many people would understand, and it's just so cool to see how he nails just a lot of things. Because <laughs> I have a great image in my head of some fucking eighteen-year-old storming Normandy with a banjo on his shoulder, with a banjo or a tennis racket. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, uh, it's pretty wild. All right, so he um, he does some more stuff in uh, France and sees the liberation of Paris. He writes about that, and um, he goes all the way up to September of 1944. Uh, one thing, I one article that was one of my favorites, I'm not even going to read any of it. <clears throat> well, I'm going to read a short bit, but very, very small, was about hedgerow sniping, which if you don't know anything about the initial invasion into France, the hedgerows were the hardest part of the fighting after D-Day. Mm-hmm. Um, but he covers about how sniping in Germany or in France at that time was the most sniping he had seen through the whole theater. So he'd been in North Africa, he'd been in Italy and he had survived D-Day. And this he said was the worst. So he says snipers kill as many Americans as they can. And then when their food and ammunition run out, they surrender to an American that isn't quite ethical. The average American soldier has little feeling against the average German soldier who has fought in open fight and lost, but his feelings about the sneaking snipers can't very well be put into print. He is learning how to kill the snipers before the time comes for them to surrender. Heavy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he talks about a lot of stuff that I don't think journalists could get away with today. And maybe well, it'd be different I'm... if we had an all-out war like that, where yeah. we were so righteous. But I can't, like, that compares to nothing I've ever read about war nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, exactly, right? And I think it's because there was a unification to the cause, uh, both at the home front and with the correspondence and everything. Like, this sort of, well, I don't I don't know, this, this feeling, this common feeling back then that America was in the war on the good side. And that for whatever reason, many journalists today either are somewhat hostile to the cause or much more cynical or doubtful or I don't know what the word is. 
I think they but, figured out the algorithm before Google did. They just know that people react to outrage. So whatever that might have something to do with it. Yeah. To make people outraged, they're going to print. Yeah, and so so you're right. I mean, it's it's definitely different than a lot of the writing that you see today. Um, and also because today, I, I, I don't know, um, I think, well, I, I don't know. I'm sure there are these um, journalists out there. You just haven't come across them I just, yeah, I'm just kind yeah. of ignorant on the fact, but I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, well, that's why I love uh, the Jocko podcast. That dude, he's not a journalist, but he he's had his podcast now for over two years. And the way he speaks about the conflict in Iraq and interviews vets from Afghanistan, I mean, he's done so much to bring those stories uh, forward. And if you haven't checked mm-hmm. him out, you should. But, I mean, he, he really brings light to a lot of stuff that uh, journalists in Hollywood don't like to talk about. Yeah, he sure does. <clears throat> uh, all right, so just real quick, uh, Farewell to Europe is the name of this one. And it was the last thing he wrote um, in Europe. Paris, September 5th, 1944. I've been 29 months overseas since this war started, have written around 700,000 words about it, have totaled nearly a year in the front lines. I do hate terribly to leave right now, but I have given out. I've been immersed in it too long. My spirit is wobbly and my mind is confused. The hurt has finally become too great. All of a sudden, it seemed to me that if I heard one more shot or saw one more man dead, I would go off my nut. And if I had to write one more column, I'd collapse. So I'm on my way. It may be that a few months of peace will restore some vim to my spirit, and I can go warhorsing off to the Pacific. We'll see what a little New Mexico sunshine does along that line. I'm sorry I haven't been able to get around to many branches of service that so often are neglected. I would like to have written about the Transportation Corps and the airport engineers and the wire stringers and the chemical mortars and the port battalions. To all of those that I have missed, my apologies. But the army over here is just too big to cover it all. Every day the war continues as another hideous black mark against the German nation. They are beaten and yet they haven't quit. Every life lost from here on is a life lost to no purpose. If Germany does deliberately drag this war on and on, she will so infuriate the world by her inhuman bullheadedness that she is apt to be committing national suicide. In our other campaigns, we felt we were fighting, on the whole, a pretty good people, but we don't feel that way now. A change has occurred. On the Western Front, the Germans have shown their real cruelty of mind. We didn't used to hate them, but we do now. So <clears throat> there's more to that article, and it's a great article, but just a summation there. Yeah, and there's a, there's a despair and... You can um, feel the stress. Yeah, and yeah. S- the stress coming out of the, of the page. So he must have been um, pretty, pretty strung out. And um, it, it's worth saying, too, that when he went back home... He also had a lot of kind of things going on back home. His wife was um, uh, seriously ill from influenza. Yeah, and she, um, you know, as they said, he mentioned earlier, they both kind of struggled with alcoholism. And uh, he also, I read something too where he he was trying to take care of his wife and kind of deal with his problems, 
but he had become so famous that people would he was kind of a celebrity and people wouldn't leave him alone and they'd come over to his house and he he had a hard time coping with that because he could he couldn't really understand that and he was trying to you know get some rest Yeah. yeah yeah i'm sure it was stressful um but yeah i think that last part I mean, because we read the article earlier about Buck, where he talks about how Buck doesn't hate the Germans. He just has a job to do. And it's kind of, even then it was more calm in Italy. Mm-hmm. And then you, when reading this one, it's like, I'm tired. And it had to have been, because when you're in your own unit and you're just dealing with the same people and you lose the people you love and then you get replacements, you got like a small scope of the war, right? Yeah. But he bounced from unit to unit, saw, you know, was was seeing the whole picture a lot of times yeah. but also being in the small picture because he would embed with those small units and get attached to those guys and see some of them die and see the reactions to, to people dying. Yeah. And, I mean, he was just like a well of sorrow at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you remember um, that sort of the famous, you know who Edward R. Murrow is? No. Um, so he was another uh, kind of journalist at the time. But anyway, the, these other journalists, just trying to speed this up, uh, would focus so much on the big events and they would kind of go, for example, and, and witness from afar these bigger events, whereas Ernie Powell would kind of embed himself in it and really kind of go down on the ground and w- walk. Yeah, it was a slow So it was very different from, from so Edward R. Murrow's work, who... It was a terrible movie done with, but anyway, Clooney, don't watch it. You okay? Yes. Oh, is that the bullshit one? The good night and good luck. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but hey, South Park immortalized that. Oh, really? You, you never saw that South Park no. episode? It's great. They they say that a uh, smog is coming from California because they're too busy smelling their own farts. Yeah. And it was, they would show the smog coming from california towards colorado and in the background of the smog it was just george clooney's acceptance speech for the oscars oh god and you just keep hearing him say i think hollywood has always influenced what goes on in america (laughs) i think hollywood has always had a big influence it was hilarious he's so full of himself yeah well that's why i love south park yeah no i know (laughs) humble you real quick i think they're the ernie pile i think if trey parker and matt stone went to afghanistan and iraq (laughs) they would be the new ernie pile yeah why is there a movie done about ernie pile that's interesting i don't know there's a fundraiser for a documentary about him oh is that right Anyway, uh, wrapping this up. So he had a lot of premonitions about death, and I can see why. I mean, he experienced shelling in Britain. He experienced shelling in Africa. He experienced shelling in Italy. He experienced shelling in France and snipers in France and all over the place. So, And he's still alive, and he just kept you know, thinking he was dying soon, and he didn't want to go to Japan or mm-hmm. to the Japanese theater, but he knew that he had to, so he went. Yeah. Um, and there's some controversy there. They talk about uh, how he thought that the Navy was a lot easier life than the Army. And some of his journalist friends called him out on it. And then he apologized and he said, I'm sorry, I'm just a soldier at heart. Yeah. But he does have a lot of great articles about the Marines uh, that were in the Pacific. Um, I think he just caught them at a wrong time to be able to give them his full attention. Towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. But he does have a cool 
little bit here. It's from an article he wrote called The Illogical Japs. And the whole article just kind of talks, it's like anti-propaganda because there was a huge push for propaganda against the Japanese and how they were, you know, goofy caricatures and not to take them seriously and we were going to stomp all over them. But then if you've ever seen the Pacific or read anything about the Pacific, you know that that was the exact opposite. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. That they were bloodthirsty, determined soldiers who loved Brutal. their... Yeah. Loved their God King and were going to die for him. And their culture is amazingly and, disciplined. Yeah. Relentless. Absolutely yeah. relentless. Um, so he kind of, with this article, he combats a lot of that. And I really respect him for it. And I think that's why people read him because he cut through the bullshit and just gave you the straight dope. So he says, I've talked with Marines. I've begun to get over that creepy feeling that fighting Japs is like fighting snakes or ghosts. They are indeed queer, but they are people with certain tactics. And now, by much experience, our men have learned how to fight them. As far as I can see, our men are no more afraid of the Japs than they are of the Germans. They are afraid of them as a modern soldier is afraid of his foe, but not because they are slippery or rat-like, but simply because they have weapons and fire them like good, tough soldiers. And the Japs are human enough to be afraid of us exactly the same way. I've not been here long enough really to learn anything of the Jap psychology, but the Pacific War is gradually getting condensed and consequently tougher and tougher. The closer we go to Japan itself, the harder it will be. The Japs are dangerous people, and they aren't funny when they've got guns in their hands. It would be tragic for us to underestimate their power to do us damage, or their will to do it. To me, it looks like soul-trying days for us in the years ahead. And a couple of things from that, we talked about this when we first read that article, but that last line when he says the years ahead. Yeah. And that was written in... Doesn't Probably have the 45. exact date. But yeah, he went to Japan or the Pacific in 45. Mm -hmm. Do you remember VJ Day? I wasn't there, no. <sighs> yeah, okay. That's a I joke no one got. <laughs> Victory Japan Day. Do you remember the date that it occurred? The date? No, not off the top of my head. Anyway, it wasn't much longer after pile had been there because he participated and died in the uh invasion of okinawa which was the last island that we hopped to before we dropped the, the bombs and they campaign. surrendered yeah yeah that's true so mm -hmm. it's funny to think that just to hear that that we still thought we were going to be fighting them for a few more years and then uh that's how secret the atom bomb was. yeah exactly no that we i mean were, yeah all the soldiers in in the pacific were dreading we're just that mentally they, thinking yeah. we're gonna invade japan and we're gonna have to go door to door in japan until which is a horrifying prospect Ooh, that would have been rough but so. uh but yeah so and then so then we get are we at the at end um we're there so tell us a little bit about it and then so he was uh, with a lieutenant colonel, and they were heading to the CP, and they were on an island that wasn't Okinawa, but it was a mm -hmm. small island right outside of Okinawa that had already been invaded. They were still trying to get out some of the Japanese there, though. A machine gun sprayed the, the jeep. Uh, the officers and pile jumped out of the jeep, got cover, poked their head up to see what was going on, and whenever the colonel looked over, Pyle had been hit, and there was a bullet through his left temple, killing him instantly. Pyle was buried wearing his helmet, among other battle casualty, on Leishima, 
between an infantry private and a combat engineer. In tribute to their friend, the men of the 77th Infantry Division erected a monument that still stands at the site of his death. Its inscription reads, At this spot, the 77th Infantry Division lost a buddy. Ernie Pyle, 18 April 1945. And one thing I thought that was very interesting, just to show you how uh, influential he was, is General Eisenhower actually gave a short eulogy about him to the press. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was, I mean, that's the commander of all the troops. He has that much going the on. The supreme has, commander. Yeah, he has time to take out. So he says, uh, the GIs in Europe, and that means all of us, have lost one of our best and most understanding friends. Um, and also the president, FDR, and the, the first lady said something about him, too. Um, they both mentioned them in their weekly programs. Yeah. After the war, his uh, remains were moved to the U.S. Military Cemetery on Okinawa. In 1949, his remains were interred at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. I don't know how to say that. So, um, and before we sort of close it up, in his pocket when he died, they found a draft of a column that was never published. I mean, it was published Posthumously. posthumously i you know i didn't need help well you said it that word. Than me, so okay posthumously posthumously anyway posthumously. um so they found this draft in his pocket and it was about the victory in europe and when he heard about it and um it just and it just has something kind of striking in it and so this is just an excerpt from it um, so this was in his pocket when he died, and it says, my, But my heart is still in Europe, and that's why I'm writing this column. It is to the boys who were my friends for so long. My one regret of the war is that I was not with them when it ended. For the companionship of two and a half years of death and misery is a spouse that tolerates no divorce. Such companionship finally becomes a part of one's soul, and it cannot be obliterated. True, I am with American boys in the other war, not yet ended, but I am old-fashioned, and my sentiment runs to old things. Those are the things that you at home need not even try to understand. To you at home, they are columns of figures, or he is a near one who went away and just didn't come back, who went away and just didn't come back. You didn't, you didn't see him lying so grotesque and pasty beside the gravel road in France. We saw him, saw him by the multiple thousands. That's the difference. End quote. Yeah, dude so. definitely um, had a way with words, and I wish we had him today to write about the brave men and women that serve in uh, our military over in the Middle East. Yeah, and I'm sure that they're out there. Maybe we just haven't found them because there's so much. The media is so vast, but, you know. Yeah, and you only hear the loudest ones, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's why I don't watch the news anymore. It's a narrative I just don't want to listen to. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, like I said, Jocko, Jocko's out there. He's doing a great job. Um, you hear a lot of these vets coming up who are getting involved in YouTube and podcasts and social media. Yeah. And it's really cool to see because they're starting to put out those normal everyday stories. So, yeah, there definitely are a few podcasters out there talking about what's going on now with the average soldier. And I hope that trend continues and only gets louder because I feel like when I talk to people – they have no idea why we're at war, what goes on at the wars that we're in, even yeah. the geographical difference between Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It's 
amazing how ignorant the American is about our conflicts currently going on. And uh, that's why this was so touching to me, to see that a guy put this much dedication, wrote every day, and uh, immortalized uh, thousands of young men who were serving in the U.S. Army and the, the Navy and the Marines at that time. Yeah. And, and he I, did some stuff on the, the Air Corps, too, which is a part of the Army. But And I think uh, what's important, too, it's like his reluctance to dive into the the meaning of the war like there's a famous story of arthur miller was trying to do um a a movie on him and arthur miller went to his house and visited him and he kept trying to get ernie Pyle to say well what is the meat to sort of philosophize the war and you know move go step away from it and sort of make it an abstract thing right and and so ernie Pyle refused to do that and and then that story he kind of tells arthur miller i I don't know what it was about. You know, it was about a lot of things. It was about boys fighting, fighting, you know, and to him, that's what it was about. I can't sum it up in a sentence. And he just kind of refused to do that, that moral grandstanding that that sort of happens very commonly today. You know, he just wanted to focus on the boys, the American boys fighting overseas and what they did and what they saw and what they felt and why we at home should know about it. And he did a great job. Sure did. You got anything else? Um, no. I mean, I guess that we could read his columns for days, and um, maybe occasionally we'll read one no. on other Is episodes. It's the only chance you got. So how dare Shut you? Down. He's very tyrannical for all his talk of loving America. I'm just saying. Ernie Pyle. You. Oh, me. Yes. Yeah. You. Well, you know, it's a contradiction, <laughs> juxtaposition. Um, so, I mean, I guess we can close it with that. And, um, yeah, if you, uh, if you like the podcast, please, uh, leave us a review. We are now on iTunes, uh, today exclamation point in world war two. You can search that you'll find it. We're also on Podbean. However you want to listen. Uh, you can comment on Podbean. We have a Facebook group that's going to be, or not group. Yeah. A Facebook page that will be open soon. Um, our, uh, visual image, uh, artist finally finished with our logo. So, uh, we'll have that and hopefully we'll get some discussions on there because we'd really like whoever's listening to get involved with the topics that we, uh, pick in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And go read some Ernie Pyle. Definitely.